<laughs> Hello, everyone. This is Rick. I'm here with Professor Lindsay Robertson. Can you please introduce yourself? Sure. I'm Lindsay Robertson. I'm the Chickasaw Nation Endowed Chair in Native American Law at the University of Oklahoma College of Law. Okay. Today, we're going to start a series on in, uh, the history of indigenous peoples, or the, the, the history of a uh, federal um, Indian, in, Indian law. Do you, I think today is going to be the Marshall Trilogy. Do you want to start on the history of the Marshall Trilogy? Sure, I'm, I'm happy to. And, and let me say how, how delighted I am to, to be talking to Rick, who is an alum of uh, our master's program yes. at the University of Oklahoma <laughs> Law School in uh, federal, uh, federal Indian law, yes. indigenous people's law. So we were delighted to have him as a student and delighted that he sort of created this uh, podcast to, um, to educate as many people as he can. Um, so uh, the Marshall Trilogy uh, is a series of three decisions issued by the Supreme Court of the United States when it was under the chief justiceship of John Marshall. The first of these cases is Johnson versus McIntosh from 1823, the second Cherokee Nation versus Georgia in 1831, and the third Worcester versus Georgia in 1832. And, and together, they sort of set the legal framework for Native peoples in the United States as a matter of U.S. law. The first of these, Johnson versus McIntosh, uh, is famous uh, or infamous for having uh, created a legal doctrine called the Discovery Doctrine. And the Discovery Doctrine uh, was designed to answer the question, what rights did Europeans acquire uh, and Native peoples lose when Europeans discovered the lands of North America? Uh, the case itself was a, a, uh, a failed land speculation. Um, the facts don't really matter for our, our purposes, although they're very interesting. Uh, but the rule that came out of the decision does, uh, and that's this discovery doctrine. And, and what the court said was that when Europeans arrived uh, and in North America and discovered the lands of Native peoples, uh, what they acquired as a matter of, of international law, this is the court's position, was ownership of all of the lands that they discovered. And the native peoples, who had, of course, been there for centuries before, uh, lost ownership of their lands because of this doctrine, but retained an occupancy right to those lands. Uh, so that's part one of the doctrine. Part two of the doctrine is they could sell the occupancy right, but only to the same discovering sovereign. Uh, we call these, the first part, the what we call the vesting of fee title part, that's the legal terms. And then second, more legal terms, the restraint on alienation part. But basically, um, picture the European guy with a, a planting a flag on the beach with the puffy shirt and stuff. What the Supreme Court said was that when that guy planted that flag and said, I claim this land in the name of whoever his king happened to be, that that king acquired ownership of the land as a matter of law. Uh, the people who lived there 
had an occupancy right to those lands again, uh, but they could only sell it if they wanted to leave at some point to the same uh, discovering European sovereign. Um, Rick, do you want me to just keep going or do you want to? Yeah, I've, you can keep going. I have questions about this, the discovery doctrine, but at the end of the, I guess the end of the um, episode. Okay, so do you want me to go through all three cases and then take questions? Yeah, we can do that. Uh, it's up entirely up to you. No, it's good. Uh, but I'm, we can do that. Okay. Yeah. All right. That's what we'll do. So uh, what, what does the occupancy right get you if you're a tribe? Um, well, that question wasn't answered in uh, the Johnston McIntosh decision in 1823, but it's it's been answered in Supreme Court decision since then. Uh, and the rule now, and this has been the rule at least since the 1940s, is that the the occupancy right actually gets the tribe uh, a lot, um, including importantly, not just a right to be there, but ownership of, of all of the resources on top of the land and all of the subsurface natural resources. So if there's oil and minerals and things below the surface, then the, the tribe or the individual tribal citizen who owns the occupancy right owns those as well. Um, and I'll tell you, this is actually globally almost unique uh, and uh, there are uh, a handful of tribes who, through individual treaty arrangements, for instance, in Canada, uh, can claim the same, but it's the norm for U.S. tribes. Um, so they're fairly expansive, so that's the good news. That's here. But other countries have also adopted this discovery doctrine, and uh, in those countries, the, the rights that the Native peoples get through occupancy are actually um, much, much less. These would include uh, Australia and, uh, and Aotearoa, New Zealand, uh, and Canada, uh, for that matter, as well as other former British colonies in Africa and South America. Um, so, that, so that's the occupancy right. Most native lands uh, in the U.S. Are, are occupancy right lands, so the U.S. owns the underlying title. Uh, we call those lands, because the U.S. is the trustee for the tribes, we call those lands trust lands. So when you hear the phrase trust lands, that's what's meant. It means lands uh, the, the U.S. owns the title to, but a, a, a Native community or an individual tribal citizen owns the occupancy right. And that right can be sold only to the United States. Uh, there are a handful of exceptions to this that some of you may know. Uh, the five tribes in eastern Oklahoma, for instance, cut a different deal when they were removed to what became Oklahoma. So that's the Chickasaw, Choctaw, Cherokee, Seminole, and Muscogee Creek. Uh, they own the underlying title to their land. Um, so those lands aren't technically trust lands. We call those restricted fee lands. Same is true for the Pueblos, because under Spanish law, the uh, Pueblos own the title to their land, and the Tuscarora in upstate New York for sort of different historical reasons. All right, the next case in the Marshall Trilogy is Cherokee Nation versus Georgia. Uh, this is the case that, that came out of the Cherokee Nation's decision to stay right where they were in northwest Georgia, despite 
several decades of the United States uh, encouraging them to sell their lands uh, at, at Georgia's insistence and relocate to the West. And by the late 1820s, it was, it was absolutely clear to everybody that the Cherokees were going nowhere. They had built a capital city, adopted a constitution. Sequoia had created the syllabary, so they had newspapers and widespread literacy. And then they discovered gold in the Cherokee Nation. Uh, they weren't going anywhere, but of course, all of these things made the Georgians want them to leave all the more. And so Georgia discovered the Discovery Doctrine and passed uh, a law in the late 1820s that said, um, you know, uh, hey, wait a minute. So we've just realized that that we, Georgia, as the successor to the British crown, own the underlying title to Cherokee lands. That means that we're kind of the landlord. It's like we own the apartment and you have a right to occupy it. And so how do you get rid of a tenant that you don't like? Well, Georgia decided, let's just kind of change the lease terms. And so they told the Cherokee Nation in the statute, you guys can stay as long as you want. But from now on, you're going to be subject to Georgia laws. We're going to attach you to four Georgia counties, uh, and your laws are um, invalid, and we're abolishing your government. So Cherokee Nation thought, you can't do this. Uh, and they went to, to, to the Supreme Court. In uh, 1831, the suit was Cherokee Nation versus Georgia. Uh, and while sympathetic to the Cherokees, the majority of the justices on the court decided, you know, um, I'm not sure that we can hear this case. Uh, the reason was, uh, according to John Marshall, that the Supreme Court could only hear lawsuits take uh, sort of what we call original jurisdiction, which means be a trial court for the lawsuit, if the suit <laughs> was between a foreign nation and a state. And Georgia was a state, but a Cherokee Nation, were they a foreign nation for purposes of the Supreme Court's having jurisdiction here? And at the end, <clears throat> John Marshall decided, I don't think so. Um, the court uh said that, in fact, um, that the tribes uh, may more properly be denominated domestic dependent nations, uh, and then followed with a line that's become famous, uh, the, the relationship of the tribes to the U.S. resembles that of a ward to his guardian, which is the first time we see any reference in, uh, in U.S. Um, case law to this guardian-ward relationship, that is still the norm. The U.S. is the guardian of the tribes. The tribes are the wards of the United States. There are all sorts of legal consequences now that flow from that. So, so this case got kicked out because the court didn't have jurisdiction. The next year, the Cherokees were back in the third case in the Marshall Trilogy, Worcester versus Georgia. Samuel Worcester uh, was a New England missionary, a non-native New England missionary who was also the postmaster at Cherokee Nation. And uh, he uh, refused to get a license from the governor of Georgia uh, to be there, which was one of the requirements of Georgia law. And so he was arrested by Georgia and thrown in prison and sentenced to a term of years at hard labor. 
Georgia went to the Supreme Court and asked the Supreme Court if they would let him out of jail uh, in the case of Worcester versus Georgia on the grounds that Georgia didn't have the power to impose its laws on the Cherokee Nation. Uh, Cherokees were a separate sovereign and the state uh, had no business asserting its sovereign power over the lands and people of another sovereign. Uh, and this one was the case that the court had been waiting for. They took it and decided that the Cherokees were absolutely right. Uh, two reasons for the decision. One, the U.S. had treaties with the Cherokees uh, that, uh, that assumed uh, in their terms that the Cherokees were a self-governing, separate, sovereign political community. Uh, that was inconsistent with Georgia's imposing its laws over them and under the what's called the Supremacy Clause in the U.S. Constitution. If there's a conflict between a federal treaty and a state statute, the federal treaty wins. The other reason that Georgia lost here was that John Marshall decided to rewrite the Discovery Doctrine. And in the Worcester version of the Discovery Doctrine, while there was still a, a limitation on sale or a restraint on alienation, the Cherokees could only sell whatever right they had in lands to the United States, there was nothing about the sovereign owning the underlying title. So by rewriting the, the Johnson McIntosh Discovery Doctrine, Basically, the court stripped Georgia of any claim to be the landlord for the Cherokees, uh, and instead they were just sort of neighboring states. Now, regrettably, that new Worcester formulation of the Discovery Doctrine did not survive. Uh, John Marshall uh, will die uh, a few years after this decision. Others will die or leave the court, and their places will be taken by appointees of Andrew Jackson, uh, not the best friend of native peoples in North America. And those guys would, in a series of decisions uh, issued between 1835 and 1842, restore the old original Johnson versus McIntosh formulation of the discovery doctrine and that's the rule that we've inherited and that's the rule that we exported to Canada and Australia and New Zealand and uh, and other places. Um, Worcester uh, and I'll conclude here and then I'm happy to take um, questions Rick or yes. comments or we can chat about this stuff yeah, we can chat about it. is um, is the case that um, that made possible, the uh, tra various trails of tears um, for the southeastern tribes initially, and then for other tribes as well. Uh, the Jackson administration came down and said, um, uh, you know, you guys, Cherokees, and they talked to the Creeks and the Chickasaws and the Seminoles and the Choctaws, you guys think that the states can't impose their own laws over you because that's what the Supreme Court has said, but don't believe it. Um, that decision's wrong, and even if it were right, we're going to get rid of it. Um, this is the point at which uh, Jackson supposedly said, uh, John Marshall has made his decision, now let him enforce it. Uh, and the, the Jackson administration was so aggressive at this that eventually even the Cherokees caved, or a portion of the Cherokee um, political class caved and signed a, a, a removal treaty 
agreeing to trade their lands in the southeastern U.S. for lands out um, where I am, out in what uh, became uh, the state of Oklahoma. Um, it's still important for tribes because uh, it is a case that very clearly says states have no business messing in Indian country. The tribes are separate sovereigns exercising uh, their own independent powers, uh, and states ought to leave them alone. Uh, so Worcester still gets cited regularly by tribal advocates in litigation. Um, Cherokee Nation is still remembered for the guardian-ward relationship that it introduced, uh, at least as a, a term in uh, American in federal Indian law. And uh, Johnson, of course, remembered globally um, uh, for good or ill because of the discovery doctrine um, that it created. Yes, um, I think my first question would be, thank you for that, by the way, um, would be, you know, since I think in uh, Johnson versus McIntosh, um, there were no natives present during that decision, right? Um, right. So, you know, the, the, the two parties agreed that um, it was the right land for the right price by the right natives. Can you talk about that? Like, how was that even, how can we even like look back and say, hey, that is a justified decision when, when the native people weren't there at all? Yeah, it's a great question. So Johnson versus McIntosh was a collusive case. The uh, lawyers uh, sort of perversely that one were actually hired by the other side to lose it. And uh, John Marshall um, had his own interests uh, in deciding the case the way he did. The discovery doctrine was actually thrown in there, um, I think not because it was necessary to resolve this case, but because Marshall thought it would be useful to resolve another case uh, in which he had an interest that wasn't even before the court. This is uh, something Marshall did on occasion. He got criticized for by among others, uh, his cousin and nemesis, Thomas Jefferson. Um, but he did it, and uh, Rick, you're absolutely right. The tribes were not there. They weren't asked, you know, what do you guys think your land rights are? Um, this is very much the Supreme Court of the United States uh, creating a rule with the assistance of, uh, frankly, a gang of land speculators, uh, then reaching outside the case um, to, um, to, to, to invent a doctrine that would have enormous impact globally, adverse impact on native land rights. Um, it's, uh, I think, uh, I'm not alone in this, that it's a case that, that, that really cries out for, um, let's charitably say reconsideration. Uh, there, there are, there have been a number of attempts around the world to get courts in these um, English-speaking countries that have adopted Johnson to just to junk it, to rewrite it, to reverse it, um, to overturn it, to revisit the discovery doctrine as a whole and either get rid of it or, um, uh, uh, or, or rewrite it. Um, uh, there have been um, political efforts made. Um, one of my favorite, and I'm blanking on, it was one of the Haudenosaunee tribes um, in uh, 1992, actually took a canoe to Spain and uh, uh, paddled it ashore and jumped out on a beach and claimed the uh, Iberian Peninsula, Spain and Portugal 
uh, in the name of their people. It's sort of a reverse discovery, but it made exactly as much sense as this did. So, um, so we'll see, you know, I mean, there, there's certainly, and I, I should say this too, another avenue that people, because I think it is just a wrong decision. I think it's an unjust decision, but I think it's procedurally flawed. Uh, you know, I just don't, I don't think there's anything to, and John Marshall himself, who's the uh, author of the thing, reversed it in important ways in Worcester versus Georgia. I don't think he even liked it uh, once he had sat down and thought about it. So, um, and it lacks a real foundation. There, there's all sorts of um, problems with uh, Johnson McIntosh. But what I started to say was another avenue that had been taken by uh, folks who are uh, troubled by Johnson is to work with the, uh, with the, through the churches. Um, you know, there are a number of, there's a religious element to um, the Johnson versus McIntosh discovery um, rule that, uh, that a number of scholars have, have written about um, some really interesting books. And uh, so, so that opens the churches up as an avenue in the Episcopal church of the USA, for instance, actually at annual convention once one year repudiated the discovery doctrine. Other churches have done the same thing. So this is all kind of working within the system. Um, and then there, there's, there's been pushback on the international level too. Uh, the Permanent Forum on Indigenous Issues at the United Nations took evidence on the um, discovery doctrine. I think that effort was led by uh, Steve Newcomb, who's written one of the probably you know best and best known books about the um, religious uh, elements of uh, of discovery, the troubling religious elements of the discovery doctrine. So, so there's that as well. I guess which is a way that's a long-winded way of answering your question, Rick. But it's to say that th that there is movement on lots of fronts, and it is an extremely troubling doctrine for lots of reasons. So, is it possible for or you know Native nations to reverse this decision? Is there work right now on, on this, on this, you know, to do it? Yeah, well, it's a, it's a decision of the U.S. Supreme Court. So the body that really needs to reverse it is the U.S. Supreme Court. Um, you know, the, so the, you know, the best thing, um, I mean, tribal governments can do whatever they want to do, but to sort of get the, the Supreme Court of the United States to reverse itself, I think is going to require uh, both education and advocacy. So people should read up, understand what it is, and then make sure that others know, because this is something that, that could happen. I think, candidly, in the U.S., the, um, the practical impact would be much less than, um, than it would be in other, in other countries, simply because this, the, the, the bundle of rights you get under the occupancy um, right are, is uh, so expansive um, so I'm not sure that, you know, tomorrow would feel that different from today, but it would certainly, um, I think, be uh, in the interest of justice to get rid of the, the, the paternalism and racism in the doctrine um, and the kind of religious imperialism that Steve Newcomb writes about. Yeah, that, that leads me to my next question is this term uh, domestic dependent nations. You know, I really feel like, you know, going through this, the program um, it was that. The U.S. government <laughs> in the Supreme Court is actually hindering our sovereignty. Is you know, so my question would be: Is there a way to move past this 
ward guardian relationship because <laughs> I feel like you know tribes could be working with other countries you know economically or you know um, you know with relations but we have to go through the you know the U.S. you know relationship and I feel like that's not really sovereignty it is but it's not you know so yeah so so yeah so that's a great question and actually there i hear two parts to your question because it's it's domestic dependent nation so the domestic part is the you know dealing with foreign states the dependent part is the guardian ward part the the guardian ward part let me talk quickly about that uh, or say a word about that first that actually i think is sort of changing you know it's funny um, when I started practicing Indian law back in the mid-1980s in Washington, D.C., there, were, there, there was much more, believe it or not, p- uh, p- federal paternalism than you see now. Um, you know, um, for instance, as a, as a young lawyer, before I could do work for a tribe, my contract uh, and every bill after that had to be approved by the Bureau of Indian Affairs. The tribe wasn't seen as... Um, you know, being able to negotiate those things on on its own. Um, that's not true anymore. And there are lots of other uh, 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 sort of procedural, uh, you know, little procedural um, elements or, or projections of paternalism that have that have disappeared. Um, and, and tribes are the federal government has backed away a lot in a number of not in all, but in a number of areas where they had been very intrusive before. Um, you know, the self-governance program is part of that. Tribes assuming uh, jurist, criminal jurisdiction over non-Indians who commit acts of domestic violence against Native women. You know, that sort of, that's a, an ex, uh, the, so the federal government, you know, stepping back a little bit. So, there, so there's been some movement in that direction. And I think, frankly, as, you know, tribes assert themselves more and start actually exercising their self-governance power more. Um, we're only going to see uh, more and more of that. Um, that's the second thing I want to say about the dependent part is a um, number of studies have been done on this. And, you know, one thing that tribes can do, there, there are all sorts of self-governance um, uh, things that, that tribes can, can do. Um, so here's a, for instance, uh, environmental regulation, um, which is in the, the news in Oklahoma now and is, is, has been for a long time in other places. Um, there's a, there are federal, uh, these are federally uh, funded programs for the most part, and there's a, a mechanism for tribes to take, a, take them over. Um, and not every tribe has done that. A bunch of the larger tribes have, but that's the sort of thing that tribes can do. Tribes can uh, take uh, responsibility under this federal self-governance act for designing and 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 with federal su- financial support uh, operating um, their own housing programs and hospitals and you know whatever sort of needs their the community has and and not every tribe has taken advantage of that but those that do sort of take take a large step away from that notion of tribes as dependent and so the more that changes on the ground, I think, the more um, we're going to see a relaxing of that guardian ward relationship. And, I, and you see it already in Supreme Court case law. The court has been kind of backing away from it because it, it makes less and less sense uh, to hang on to every day. On the domestic one, uh, I'm going to give a plug for another organization that, that I'm involved with. Um, th- this isn't relating, well, in sort of sense, I guess it is. 
um, with um, other countries. It's relating with other native communities directly. It's an organization called the International Intertribal Trade and Investment Organization, or IDEO, I-I-T-I-O. Uh, the website is idio.org. Uh, and it's a it's an organization that we started uh, a few years ago, I guess five, six, seven years ago, uh, in Norman, uh, to uh, encourage, uh, educate on, and facilitate direct uh, tribe to tribe trade relations across international boundaries. So um, we have our our principal um, uh, cadres, right, groups of Active participants are in the U.S. and Canada, but we also have members uh, from Australia uh, and New Zealand. We've got interest in Central America as well, uh, and deals are starting to get struck. It was kind of an idea. The idea behind it was, um, you know, all of these international boundaries are kind of post-colonial, like the Canadian-U.S. boundary. That wouldn't have meant anything to the people who were here before the U.S. and Canada were created. And um, and there were trade relations and, and you know, what what would happen if we erased in people's minds that international boundary and allowed native communities to reestablish direct trade relations and and it's happening. And so the, the folks who are listening to this who are interested in that, I encourage you to go online. We do lots of uh, we're doing educational webinars now and, you know, all sorts of things. And we have uh, when we can meet face to face annual conferences in Norman. Uh, and in Canada, uh, alternating. So this is something that um, I think on the domestic side, uh, tribes can do uh, in order to move past that Cherokee Nation versus Georgia uh, formulation. Yeah, I think uh, I like how you mentioned the EPA because going through the program, I knew I was I read that there was an EPA policy for administration of environmental programs on Indian reservations, and where the EPA recognized tribes as sovereign entities, right? And they would yeah. work with tribes to, you know, for, you know, any, you know, environmental programs on the, on the reservation, which I found weird because during Stanley Rock, I was always, you know, in the back of my mind, I was like, what happened to that EPA document, you know? Like, why isn't, why aren't tribes listened to during this? I don't know, do you have an insight about that? What happened on Standing Rock or did our sovereignty not... You know, I mean, what happened to our sovereignty during this pipeline? Yeah, so the pi so the pi the pipeline. You know, I'm not. Um, I think the 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 problem with the pipeline, um, what made it slightly unusual, is that it didn't run through the reservation. Ah, okay. Um, so there was there were interests affected clearly, but but it was a slightly it was a slightly different scenario. If it had been through the reservation, I think it would have worked out a little bit differently. Okay. Uh, let me see my next question would is going to be um so i think you know part of this this series is is you know informing people the importance of our tribal sovereignty you know like you said earlier in, in the episode that in the u.s our sovereignty is like a little bit better than other places and even though it's not perfect you know and we want to make it stronger but i i, I really do think in my opinion that our sovereignty here is almost like, like at a beacon, we can, we're trying to break through, you know, colonization. Like what's, how important people, you know, for people listening, how important is our sovereignty, not just for us, 
you know, for like globally to make it stronger? Oh, yeah, tr tremendously so. And sovereignty is one of those words that gets thrown around a lot and means different things in different contexts. So for, for me, as a, as a law professor and a lawyer, I think when I think the word sovereignty, I'm thinking uh, two things. Um, one is um, uh, sovereignty as the, the set of things that tribes as governments get to do under law. And every sovereign operates this way. So state governments, right? What, what do they get to do? How do they operate? And, and there are external legal limitations and there are internal legal limitations. Like every state has its own constitution. Its government is organized the way the state organized. So tribes are the same. So tribes have their own constitutions. Uh, that's the internal limitation. Then there are the external limitations. In the case of tribes, those are the things imposed by the U.S. through congressional statutes or Supreme uh, court decisions or or treaty, right? Because sometimes tribal sovereignty is limited by deals that the tribe has struck. So, um, you know, maybe a limitation would be the tribe can have a, a criminal court, but can't uh, use it to prosecute non-Indians, right? Which is a Supreme Court rule. Um, and the sentences that the that the judge can impose are limited for the most part to misdemeanor sentences. That's a year in jail, right, per offense. So, so, uh, so in other words, so on, on all of those, you know, the sort of what can governments do aspect of sovereignty to, to understand what sovereignty is for a particular native political community, you, you need to know what those limitations are. And so it seems to me, you know, for, for a tribe, one of the, the first things you want to do is to figure that out because that's, that's your, that's where you get to operate. And then, uh, you know, my advice is always push to the limits of whatever you can do under your own constitution and, and learn what the external limitations are and then push. And then, and you, you know, you're sort of pushing at the edge and this is what, you know, tribes that were successful, for instance, in getting Congress to change the rules on criminal, on prosecuting non-Native men who committed acts of domestic violence against Native women, that you can, because those boundaries can be pushed. All right, so that's one aspect of sovereignty, those rules and, and learning them, understanding what they are. Um, and by the way, that's what you did through the through the master's program, mm -hmm. right? A lot of that was about learning what those rules are so that you can be a, a more effective um, activist, I guess, you know, in the sense of sitting down with the government and saying, all right, we can do this. Let's do it. Let's let's do all of these things. The, the other aspect of sovereignty is is and this may be the most Im important as a as a as a le big picture legal matter is um, where does that power to do stuff emanate from? And in most of the world, what you'll find, and this is another thing that I think is the U.S. does right, uh, in most of the world, the power that, that native governments exercise is, is, is delegated to them, is given to them by the, essentially the, the, the colonial descended government. But in the U.S., the, the call was made many years ago that tribes were here first. Uh, they had governments before Europeans arrived. So the power they exercise is 
and this is the legal term, inherent. So it's, it's power that emanates internally from them. It's older than the U.S. Constitution. And that turns out, in a, in a global sense, to be hugely important. Um, so, you know, the fact that, that tribes, so, the, so those are the two elements, that tribes are, what it means as a matter of law that tribes are sovereign is that they're, they're exercising inherent power and they're exercising it to do a whole lot of different things, governmental things, and then actively working to expand the universe of what those things can be. That's what a lawyer means, an Indian lawyer means by sovereignty. Um, certainly what I mean when I, what I think about when I think about sovereignty. Yeah. You know, during my activism, I, I advocate really strongly for, you know, tribal sovereignty. And I really do feel like non-natives, first off, non-natives don't even understand our history, let alone our sovereignty. But, you know, even, even within uh, the native community, sometimes our sovereignty is misunderstood. I really do feel like people have the misperception that, our sovereignty is given us to us by the U.S. And I always say, no, it's not. Because, yeah, mm-hmm. in some treaties, in some court cases, it does state that we are like extra constitutional nations, something like that, like before the Constitution. So our sovereignty, actually, we, we've had it, right? So Absolutely. Yep. So I think and that word ex- that word extra constitutional is important too, and that, and it's the exact right word that tribes actually and a lot of people don't realize this exist outside the U.S. Constitution, yeah, and aren't subject to the Constitution because there's no you look at the pictures there wasn't a single tribal delegate at the Philadelphia Constitutional Convention and they didn't sign it so they're not subject directly to the Constitution. Yeah. So when I when I explain this to people, you know, they say, you know, oh, you know, sovereignty is just a European thing. I say, no, you know, like it's not because I mean, like the Chinese have sovereignty, like, you know, Japan has like every country in this world has sovereignty, you know. So it's not really like a European thing. It's like a global like native, not native, I mean, um, nation building thing. So it's it's an it's an idea that we, you know, we just like you said, we, we govern ourselves, we govern, you know, the, the space and everything. So I'm going to see my next question. Um, okay. So let's see. Yeah. So that, I think that's, that's pretty much it. I mean, we're going to get into um, the, the, you know, the native courts in the next episode. And um, when you brought up Oh, wait, let me ask a question. So, you know, you said you've been a lawyer since the 80s. You know, I grew up in California. Um, you know, I was born in the 80s, and I, I, I watched these tribal nations in California become, like, this economic, you know, superpowers in California um, with their gaming, you know? Has, has, has Indian um, gaming changed uh, Indian law? In your, in your point of view, has it like helped our sovereignty? Because I really do feel like, you know, in this program, um, a lot of our history in Indian gaming are states trying to infringe in our sovereignty, you know, and us pushing back on states trying to remove our, our, our sovereignty from, you know, within Indian gaming. Yeah. So, yes. Yeah. So the short answer is yes. Um, and uh, so what, what gaming did was to provide uh, tribes, not every tribe, right, but strategically located tribes, uh, a, uh, a, a, a an, an inflow of cash that's 
can be very large and and regular, right? So it's 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 not like a one-time thing like we struck oil and then we deplete the field. It's coming in every month, right? In uh, cash in fairly large amounts and and cash, uh, you know, can do all sorts of things. Uh, and it's not just you know engaging in politics. It's it, it it's made a lot of of, of native communities. Um, that if that have had you know been in the position to um, to 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 make money from gaming, um, the ability to uh, assert their their sovereignty. Uh, you, you know, I mean, it's, it's almost as simple as that. Um, so, uh, Mashantucket Pequot could build a museum, right? Which they wouldn't have been able to afford to do before the. Uh, Choctaws can buy uh, fire trucks for local non-native communities that couldn't afford them, and that buys them goodwill with their neighbors and makes them an important part. Uh, gaming can build, uh, help provide funds to develop other businesses and industries, and those employ people, and those can fund schools and all sorts of stuff. So, yeah, it's you know it's a means to an end thing. This money coming in. Um, and, and the other thing about gaming is it's all, it's externally generated. So like in Southern Oklahoma, it's not the Chickasaws spending all their money at their own casino. It's folks driving up from Texas, right? So it's money coming in from outside the, the, the community um, as opposed to just money recirculating within the community. And, and it really has brought uh, the opportunity for a lot of governments to do a lot of good stuff. Yeah, so one, no, my next question, sorry uh, for stuttering, <laughs> but I, I have heard some Native organizations say that they want to open up treaty, treaty making again, right, with the U.S. And, you know, I don't know what your opinion on this, because in my point of view, um, you know, I want to say several things, you know, that the U.S. legitimizes itself, in my point of view, through treaties, Right. And mm -hmm. um, that's one thing that I'm really hesitant about. Like, I don't feel like I, we should legitimize the U.S. again with treaties, um, the, the government. And I feel like um, like treaties hindered our sovereignty, you know, and I, I don't know, if, you know, like in my point of view with our sovereignty, we should make it. I don't know, like where. It's kind of like a map, like, you know, when you go to or the GPS, when you you know want to go to, like, say, Starbucks, you put Starbucks in and, you know, it tells you how to get to Starbucks. But with our sovereignty, it's like, where should we go? You know, like um, within, you know, how, you know, how do we what's the end goal for for like, you know, indigenous sovereignty? So it's pretty much two questions. Like the first question is, do you feel like treaty making again with the u.s is the right move and second is like where should we where's like the you know the goal for our sovereignty yeah so so the so the second one i'll do first because it's less technical and that's it, really the call of every community right yeah. you know we got this sovereignty what what do we want to do with it um you know most most nations the goals include uh you know quality of life health happiness for citizens, cultural preservation, language retention or restoration, you know, there's, you can go in a million different directions. And the, you know, the wonderful thing about um, having all of these tribal governments, you know, 570 something federally recognized, and then others that are not federally recognized, is that each one can pursue its own 
path. So I'm not sure that there is one answer to that. So I'm gonna I'm gonna punt. The 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 other question on treaty making, um, uh, treaties. You know, treaties are a funny thing. Most people don't realize it. So that the U.S. is globally almost unique in uh, in actually having treaties between native. Uh, communities and uh, first the English and the French and the Swiss and the Dutch and now then the United States um, and they were entered into because of uh, relative balance of power uh, you know the tribes had the muscle to say you know well we'll negotiate with you but uh, they didn't this didn't happen in Latin, there's a single Latin American treaty the Europeans just showed up, recognized that they had a military technology advantage, and started telling folks what to do with the backing of the Pope, right? Uh, Australia, same thing. Australia, uh, there's a movement there. They would love to have a treaty. Uh, New Zealand has one treaty. Uh, Australia has one, too, that was never <coughs> recognized by the state. It's my favorite in a way because it was <coughs> negotiated by a an English colonist named Batman or Batman, right? That's how it's spelled. It was the Batman Treaty, which could be cool, but isn't because it's not uh, recognized by anybody. Um, the um, should treaty making come back? I, I actually think it. I mean, there'd be uh, it. It would. It would make the. I guess you have to look at what the alternative. The alternative since 1871 has been that Congress passes a statute telling tribes what to do. And there may be a little bit of negotiation. So it seems to me like treaties would be a step up from that. Um, but um, but the problem is um, the the reason that the treaty making stopped in 1871. And so for advocates of renewed treaty making, they need to think this through. It seems to me um, the reason it stopped is under the U.S. Constitution, treaties are negotiated by the executive branch and ratified by the U.S. Senate, and the body in the government that plays no role in treaty making is the House of Representatives, but the Constitution says that the House of Representatives is where all funding bills must originate, which means that the, the executive, the president was out negotiating treaties uh, saying, you know, we're going to give this money or whatever it is to these tribes. And then the Senate would say, fine by us. And then they'd go to the House, hand them the treaty and say, come up with money to pay for all this stuff. And by 1871, the House said, blew the whistle and said, knock it off. We're not, you know, we're we're willing to find money for Indian treaties, but but we have to have some say in what the terms of the deal are. And so that's when they stopped making treaties and shifted to statutes, again, that were still negotiated, certainly at the time, um, at least to a certain extent, with the tribes. But they took the form of statutes because then the House had a vote on them. It's really, it's really just sort of – it's one of those in, in, constitutional technicalities that caused the end of treaty making. But I think a lot of um, – you know, symbolism value, you know, if nothing else, a symbolic value was lost then, because as I think proponents of renewed treaty making understand and argue, um, treaties, that's what states do. That's what countries do. And tribes are sovereigns exercising inherent sovereignty, and they ought to be they ought to be operating in that realm, too. OK, that's good. Yeah, I, I, I agree. Um, I think 
for me, in my own own opinion, like you know, everybody has their own opinion about what what we should do with an Indian country. There's a lot of different opinions, but I think for me, more importantly, is you know, kind of like undoing Johnson versus McIntosh and you know, the, the, uh, that uh, domestic dependent term. But that's just me, you know. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I, I agree that it's I don't know, it's kind of weird, but I think we need to advocate for you know for other people native and non-natives to learn about our sovereignty and this is why this series is important for for me so well i I appreciate your time and this is the first episode out of three um i appreciate don't hang up after i stop recording (laughs) please (laughs) but um i hope people will keep tuning in to this series thank you very much thank you